Hello and welcome to PediaPod for December 2022. To round off this year, we're discussing the socio-demographic factors which affect diagnostic evaluation for genetics outpatients with rare diseases. Rare diseases affect millions of people in the USA. Identifying the precise causative change in the genome can lead to novel therapies and improves outcomes for patients. However, access to subspecialty care is not distributed equitably and there may be other barriers to clinic attendance. Furthermore, once established within the genetics clinic, families may still face barriers along the way to the identification of a molecular diagnosis. In this episode, we meet this month's highlighted early career investigator, Monica Wojcik, a neonatologist and geneticist at Boston Children's Hospital, who ran a study to determine the influence of social determinants of health on the care cascade following referral at a high-volume paediatric outpatient genetics clinic. I started by asking her where her career got started. So I actually grew up very close to where I currently work, just outside of Boston in Brookline, Massachusetts. And I did my medical training also very close by to where I work at Harvard Medical School. And then after that, went to residency at the Boston Combined Residency Program at Boston Children's and Boston Medical Center. And then I stayed around for my post-residency training in both neonatology and genetics as a combined fellow. So I've been very lucky to stay at this institution pretty much my whole career. When I started my post-fellowship work, one of the things that was really important to me was being able to not only help make genetic diagnoses for the families that I worked with with rare disease, but also to study how the diagnosis impacted their care and their life, and also to promote equity within this field. And so I actually went back to school after my first year as an attending and did my master in public health degree at the Harvard School of Public Health. So during that time, I also was part of the Harvard-wide Pediatric Health Services Research Fellowship. Through that work, you know, I continued to learn about ways to define disparities and inequities in all different types of pediatric care. So you've had an interest in rare diseases for quite a long time, it seems. And I wonder if you could give us a sense of scale then. I wonder if, you know, rare diseases is somewhat misleading. You know, while these conditions are individually rare, they're actually collectively more common than we think. And some say that about, you know, one in 10 people is living with a rare condition. Even if there are lots of people collectively with these rare diseases, as you say, individually, they are presumably quite hard to identify. What are, what are some of the challenges in spotting rare diseases? There's kind of two different levels of difficulty. So one is just recognizing that the person that you're seeing, you know, in clinic or in the hospital has a rare disease. And sometimes often the symptoms that they present with can be seen in other more common things. And then once you've clinically identified and maybe even defined or clinically diagnosed the condition, finding the genetic cause or the you know molecular underpinning of that condition is another challenge. And is that what you describe in the paper as the sort of entirety of the genetic diagnostic odyssey? Exactly. Yep. In this paper, what we were really trying to do was not just say, you know, how many people were thought to have a rare disease, but how many of them actually achieved this endpoint of finding that precise, you know, mutation, that precise change in the genome that's causing the condition. So in our paper, we really wanted to see, you know, of the people who came to our outpatient clinic, how many were able to ultimately find that underlying, you know, causative change in the genome. 
compounding those difficulties of diagnosing these genetic disorders. There's also some research, I think some of it you've done yourself on some of the sociodemographic factors which seem to provide some sort of barriers to this. I wonder if you could just give us a bit of the context on that. Um, so we, when we designed this project, you know, the underlying hypothesis was that you know, people who had certain barriers to care, whether it's, you know, geographic barriers, financial issues, uh, language barriers that, you know, are preventing them from being able to get to the clinic or to be able to complete this, you know, really complicated cascade of care that's required to find this genetic diagnosis, that certain people then may, may be less likely to ultimately find that change in the gene or that precise genetic diagnosis. So we tried to utilize the information that we had available to us in the clinic to be able to really tease apart all these areas at which certain people might face barriers to, to care, because that would ideally then lead the way to addressing the barriers and figuring out how we can you know, ultimately achieve our goal, which is equity in genomic medicine. So tell us a bit about this. It was a retrospective cohort study, wasn't it? We had to actually manually abstract data from you know thousands of charts to be able to get this information. It took quite a long time. And so in the end, we had this retrospective data set where we had data on everybody who presented to clinic for their initial visit in a certain period of time. And then we looked at the outcomes two years later. Let's hear about the results then. What, what was the most striking kind of cause of inequity when it came to this genetic diagnosis? What I initially found was entirely the opposite of what I have hypothesized. So, you know, when we were looking at barriers, we wanted to look at things like household income, geography, education level, and, and we used a, an index called the Childhood Opportunity Index, which is a really nice multidimensional estimation of resources at the neighborhood level. And then we also wanted to look at race, ancestry, ethnicity. Because of some limitations with the data, the race data were not as complete as we would have liked. But we we did have data on language proficiency. And so, again, we thought that for families with limited English proficiency, they would have more difficulty completing this complex care cascade and be less likely to be diagnosed. We actually found the opposite, that our non-English speaking families had much higher rates of diagnosis. So there's really two parts to that. So one is that if you look at the ability to get a diagnosis, a lot of it really hinges on insurance status because if you know a test is going to be covered by insurance, the provider can order that test right away, you know, often even at the first visit. If you're creating space between that initial visit and the blood draw and, and maybe even the blood draw never happens or you have to come back, you know, several weeks later for the blood draw. You mean if you have to kind of barter with your private insurance company? Exactly. If you're if you're spending weeks deliberating with private insurance it's not going to be resolved at that first visit. We know there's going to be a certain percentage of patients that aren't going to come back. And so what we found out was that, you know, access to testing via insurance really facilitates access to the diagnosis. And so we noted that many of our families who had limited English proficiency also had public insurance. And kind of ironically, where we live, the public insurance plans facilitate access to testing. And so the patients that have our public insurance plan, we were able to order a lot more testing. And those that had the private insurance went through this process of prior authorization. 
organization. And we're not the only ones that have found that. Others have found that too, that private insurance can have more issues with denials of authorization. The other thing that we found was that the the people that had limited English proficiency tended to present and be diagnosed at a later age. And there is a suggestion that they might have more severe phenotypes, meaning that that group of people that were not English speaking might have been more enriched for genetic diagnoses. The other thing that we did in, in thinking about this was to look, to look at our rates of clinic attendance by looking at some of these factors um, related to who actually comes to the clinic visit versus either canceling or not coming to visit without calling to cancel. And so we actually found that there was a large difference there where our Spanish-speaking families were much more likely to not attend the visit without calling to cancel or reschedule than our English-speaking families. And so again, you know, we felt that that seemed to go along with our explanation that there is this major barrier to finding a diagnosis, but it might even exist at just getting into the clinic in the first place. That's one major question I think that stems from this work is we don't really know why the people who were scheduled to come in didn't ultimately come to the visit. That's actually part of the follow-up work that we're doing is, is trying to reach out to our families that don't make it into clinic and try and figure out not only why they didn't come, but what can we do to help? Are there any obvious culprits for that? I mean, did some of them live 100 miles from the genetics clinic? Is it about what they have in their local neighborhood? Yeah, it's a really great question. I mean, I think there's some suggestion that it might be related to, you know, low neighborhood resources, which suggests that things like transportation or time off from work could be a challenge. Also, you know, with our families that have difficulties speaking or reading English, you know, they might not have fully realized or been told what the purpose of the visit was or why it's important. And especially for families that have children with, you know, complex medical conditions, you know, you know, people are always trying to triage, you know, in their life and figuring out what's what's a critical visit to attend, what's not. And if it's not clearly beneficial to come to this clinic that might be on the other side of town and, you know, might take your whole day off from work to, to get there, you know, some families might just not be able to make it in. And though it's saddening that, you know, these inequities in genetic diagnostics exist, I suppose you could find a glimmer of optimism in the fact that it's largely behavioural by the sounds of it and could be changed by targeting, for example, families with non-English primary languages, etc. It sounds inherently fixable. Yeah, I mean, I think I do think like many other areas of healthcare, you know, people like to say like your healthcare system is perfectly designed to get the result that it gets. There's a lot of systems issues that we can address here to try to reduce these inequities. I think ultimately, you know, what our results suggest is that, again, if you can come into genetics clinic and have that diagnostic test sent at that first visit, you know, that's going to really help a lot of people. Uh, complete that diagnostic odyssey much faster. And so thinking about ways to help facilitate that. And and again, this is really a multifaceted problem. There's there's insurance barriers, but there's a lot of opportunity for advocacy to try to improve some of these insurance practices that really do obstruct care for a lot of our families. 
Um, and then thinking about things like language, you know, just making sure that all of our materials are accessible and in a variety of languages to help encourage that visit. I think there's also room for a lot of outreach to pediatricians and physicians in the community that are referring their families to help them recognize these rare conditions and know who to refer and how to help facilitate that. There's just so many different levels of possible intervention. It seems kind of daunting actually to think about, but I think that that's really where, you know, taking this kind of approach of really dissecting the process and figuring out, you know, where are these gaps and who's falling through the gaps can really help us pick away and address these things one by one until we can get it right. And what are your next clinical or research goals? Another one of my um, co-authors on this paper, Dr. Amy Kritzer, leads our quality improvement initiatives within our genetics division. And she's designed some really thoughtful and, and helpful projects to collect more information, you know, from our families who have difficulty accessing the clinic. And then again, trying to mobilize and use that information to increase access. And then on kind of a totally different, um, but parallel process, we have an ongoing study now, um, related to another group that I work with at the Broad Institute, um, at MIT and Harvard with the Center for Mendelian Genomics there. There's a genomic um, research study there called the Rare Genomes Project, where we offer on a research basis, you know, genome sequencing to people with rare disease. Within that group, you know, we're also really trying to improve our access and improve equity and make the study more accessible to people who are, you know, have experienced barriers to care. So we hope to be making some headway on that soon. That was Monica Wojcik from Boston Children's Hospital. And that's all we have time for in this episode of Pediapod. Please join us again in January 2023 for another interesting discussion with an early career investigator. I'm Jeff Marsh. Thanks for listening. Listener.